0: Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning your kingdom would come, that the good order of your kingdom would prevail in this place, that you would set order in our hearts and in our lives, that you would restore order and health and power in those places in our lives that have become tangled. We pray, Father, that we would leave here healthier than we arrived. We pray, Father, that we would leave here empowered to do the purpose that you have called us to do. We pray, Lord, for the ministry of your Holy Spirit and your angels in our midst. That today, uh, the change in this room would be more than the sum of our efforts to change. We pray for kingdom blessing in Jesus' name. Pop quiz can or no can? Yeah. That was pathetic. Yeah. Can or no can? Yeah. Slightly more conviction. Thank you very much. Uh, Have you ever said, uh, you know, I don't have time, I just don't have the energy, I don't have the money, I just don't have the know how? Have you ever said that? Do you find yourself saying it a lot? Can. Can. (laughs) Good. That was 60 seconds ago. We've moved on. Um, do you find yourself saying it a lot? Saying, "Well, you know, I just don't have time for that," or I, "I'm just, I'm just not ready for that." Do you do you say that a lot? You think? I mean, because life life is full. Life can be a bit chaotic, and it's tempting to say, "I don't have, I don't have uh, what I need." Uh, but this morning, I just want to uh, convince you and to inspire you with the fact that you almost certainly do have what you need, or at least you can get it. And knowing this is an important element in achieving your purpose, the purpose in your life, which is the point of your life, and purpose is what you were born for. You really want to get on that. You really want to achieve it. And, and almost certainly, you have what you need to pull it off, or you at least have access to getting what you need to pull it off. So I want you to, to warm up today. Like turning to someone and saying, actually, I think you can. I think, I, th- I think you can do it. I think you have what you need. Look into their eyes and convince them of the truth, please. Yeah. Convince. Be convincing. This is a, this is a ministry moment. Sell it, people. Sell it. Thank you. Uh, we're in a, city, a series, we're sort of wrapping up a series on, on what we've called inner health and fitness. Uh, trying to, to really be strong internally. Uh, the thing is that you can, you can actually you know, be doing okay at, at your ministry in life. You can be doing okay at your calling. You can be doing okay in most of your choices. You can be doing okay in your worship, but still kind of get taken out in life. Have your, have your feet taken out from under you. Uh, frequently with some personal weakness, some some lack of fitness that just crops up to get you. Or maybe it's just one thing in your life that you simply have, have failed to take care of, and that one thing can ruin all the other things. It can be the chink in your armor or the one tragic flaw in your life. And personal health means getting rid of these little pockets of unhealth, these little pockets of dysfunction, these little pockets of weakness or sickness that take you out. Health in life is determined by what we do to feel powerful. All humans are driven to do what makes them feel powerful. Unhealthy people do things that make them feel powerful in the short term, but actually weaken them in the long term. And the illustration we've been using is junk food. When you feel the need for food comfort, you reach for the malasada and you eat the malasada and it makes you feel very powerful in the short term. I get an amen. Over the long term, it will not truly make you powerful. Sorry. It will actually make you weaker. You know, and the more you go to that malasada, brother, <laughs> the actu- actually, the, the weaker that, that you're going to get. Short-term empowerment often translates into long-term weakness. Healthy people, on the other hand, do not just what makes them feel power, but what makes them powerful right? They do healthy things to power up. You know, they reach for the salad. They reach for the fresh papaya and not so much the malasada. I'll just let that sink in, sink in. Well, today uh, we're going to talk about a specific concept uh, that I call resourcefulness, uh, which is my term for the quality that overcomes what I think is one of the great toxifiers of life, one of the great weakeners of life, uh, the spirit of poverty, the spirit of poverty. Jesus talks about being poor in spirit in the Sermon on the Mount, but that's a slightly different thing. To be poor in spirit means that you're hungry for spiritual things, right? You feel a lack. You you always want more spiritual things if you're hungry and you eat uh, spiritual things. You get stronger. So, to be Uh, To be poor in spirit in the sense that Jesus uses the term is is really, really good. But to have a spirit of poverty is, is something else. To have a spirit of poverty or a poverty mindset is when you've given yourself to the belief that you don't have enough for what's required of you. The spirit of poverty is the belief that you don't have enough For what's required of you that you don't have enough to fulfill your purpose in life or the major purposes in your life god has given you access to all the power and resources that you need to do what you should do satan will assure you that you are limited by your lack of resources and your basic inability to do much about it. God has given you all that you need to pull off what you should. Satan is happy to convince you that you don't have enough to pull off what you should. One of the basic oppositions in spiritual life. But here's the killer. This this is what really weakens us. Sometimes we embrace a poverty mindset because it makes us feel powerful. In the sense that it makes us feel secure. There's something, uh, there's some sort of perverse security in believing that there's nothing you can do. You just don't have enough. There's nothing you can do. And if there's nothing you can do, uh, you don't really have to do anything, right? You don't have to follow through it. And, and it, it kind of takes the pressure off, in a way. It's the comfort of excuses, you know? And, and that, is, that is really comforting particularly in the short term, and sometimes we can get ourselves to a place in life where we just embrace that wholeheartedly, sometimes unconsciously, but we get into a spirit of poverty in such a way that we just, we excuse ourselves from purpose, and that kind of feels secure in the short term. And then in the long term, it comes back to bite us in the butt and makes us feel very hollowed out in life. It's a false comfort that can ruin you. How how does this happen? How do do we get ourselves into a poverty mindset? Well, I mean, uh, the problem with answering that question is that there's so many different things uh, that can get us into a poverty mindset because, I'm here to tell you, life is hard disappointments happen, and we've all had them. But some of us have had them a lot more than others. You know, I'm a firm believer that some lives are harder than others, and that's often a very injurious thing to experience. You know, if your life is harder than someone else's life, you look at that other life and you feel relatively impoverished, and that can really scar you that can develop mindsets in you. So so what happens is that you experience some bad outcomes, you experience some bad losses, you experience some bad disappointments in life, and that leads to embracing the bad outcomes, right? Some disappointment happens in your life, and, and there's a way in which, look, you just have to accept it and move on. But the way we accept it, that's where the danger comes in. Do we accept it? Because, you know, hey, life is hard, stuff happens, but faith overcomes? Or do we accept it and accommodate it in a way that makes us feel really impoverished? You know, in order to accept that, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to change the way I think about my life. You know, I'm going to stop hoping. I'm going to stop believing that my life can get better because that takes the pressure off. And that sort of acceptance, well, it's not really acceptance, it's resignation. You resign yourself from good outcomes at that point. You know what I'm talking about, right? I could talk longer about that, but you get it, because you know, in one way or another, I think we've all at least been tempted uh, to go this way. So you have a bad, bad, bad outcome, and then you end up embracing the bad outcome in a way that's not really healthy. Maybe you even use faith to embrace disappointment in your life, was What we can do is that we can change our faith. We can reshape it. Instead of having faith that says, I can overcome any challenge in life. Instead of, of emphasizing that sort of faith, we begin to emphasize the faith that says, I can endure all the crap in life. And we come to identify solely with endurance faith instead of overcoming faith. Now, is endurance faith bad? No, it's vital you know, it's, it's life-giving, but it's incomplete, right? It's incomplete. And so if you have endurance faith, that doesn't also make room for overcoming faith. If, you, if your faith is entirely tuned to enduring bad circumstances, less than ideal circumstances, and not at all tuned to overcoming and getting good outcomes, then you're halfway there, you're, you're, you're stuck in the middle, and that's no good. That will weaken you. So it's an incomplete uh, sort of faith. You following that? So you have bad outcomes. We embrace the bad outcomes, perhaps. We alter our faith to endure by editing the faith that compels us to overcome. And eventually, that, believes, that leads to disbelieving in good outcomes. We make this deal with, our, with ourselves where we just decide that good outcomes aren't going to happen for us. And then that's just one less thing to worry about. And then that leads to self-fulfilling poverty expectations. Because if you don't believe that good outcomes can really happen for you, if you really don't believe that overcoming and breakthrough and fruitfulness can happen for you, if you don't believe it, then of course it makes it much harder for it to happen, right? And you start self-fulfilling your projections of disappointment. One of the iconic examples is of, of the person, and, and unfortunately we've probably, we probably all know this person, uh, the person who accepts an abusive relationship because she thinks that's all she can get, right? And she so desperately wants to be loved that she will take a relationship at any price. I say she, but it can happen to men as well, right? It's like that relationship is is toxic and abusive, but in some way that person has resigned herself the thinking that, well, no, this, this is how my life works, you know, and that happens relationally. Uh, it happens in the world of chemical addiction, <laughs> you know, it, it happens in all these different areas uh, of life. Um, sometimes I call it slave thinking. Um, here, here's what I mean. Some people avoid hard work because they think they're above it. They're kind of high and mighty. But some people avoid hard work because they don't think it will do any good. And that's, that's slave thinking. Uh, slaves don't work hard. Why? Because there's no way for a slave to get ahead. So what they do is they, they, they slave away. You know, they, they do whatever they can to, to survive the job. But they're not trying to improve. They're not trying to break through to a new level of of life and fruitfulness. because Why? Well, because they're slaves. They are stuck as stuck can be. And to survive the institution of slavery, you can imagine what sort of emotional warps you have to engage in, right? Uh, You develop a sort of endurance faith, but not necessarily an overcoming breakthrough sort of, of faith. Sometimes I call that slave thinking. If you're a slave to your... Job, you're in trouble. If you're a slave to your marriage, you're in trouble. And it happens. It happens a lot. You can be a slave to your children. You can be a slave to your past, which is to say, you just gradually become resigned to living the patterns of your past without believing they can ever change. You're enslaved. Uh, You can be a slave to, you know, an addiction, certainly. You can even be a slave to your God. You can work out some sort of way of relating with God in which you say, yeah, 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 he he can bless me, he's all that, but he doesn't really bless my life. And that's how you know that the poverty spirit, the poverty mindset, has snuck even into your relationship with God. And that's really what I worry about, because that's, not, that's deadly. What you've done there, to paraphrase some words of Jesus, is that the light within you has become darkened, right? You subtly have started to believe that maybe God himself is against you in some ways, in some limiting, uh, limiting uh, ways. But anyway, if you're a slave to any of those things, if you're a slave to your job, if you're a slave to your marriage, if you're a slave to your past, if you're a slave to your God, then you're not working very well in those areas. You're just trudging and getting through. You're weak. You're not healthy. You're giving away all of your powers, and, and, and you start to see symptoms. If this is the case in your life, uh, you might be one of the. You might become one of those people who are addicted to crises. Like life always has to be a, a a crisis for you. Probably not you, of course, but people you know. You know, do you know anybody who just seems completely excited by crises? It's like it's the way they know how to function in life. Do you know anybody like? I mean, not you, of course, but do you know people like this? Do you know people like this? Uh, it's because. You have yourself tuned to crisis and disappointment, and you don't really know how to tune yourself to something else, poverty poverty mindset. Uh, a person who has uh, a, a slave-thinking poverty mindset approach uh, will be often complaining, just, you know, give to complaints. I'm sure this doesn't happen at your workplace, but do you ever have meetings where you sit down? It's like 90% of the meeting is, is just complaining right? It's just, it's just all a bitch session. Edit that out of the recording. <laughs> you know? Um, if you have a poverty mindset and slave thinking, then you'll be fascinated by difficulties. You know what I mean? You'll understand the difficulties arrayed against you down to their finest detail. Be fascinated by why you can't, dot, 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 right? because that's how, that's how you work. Um, and, and you'll see persistent patterns uh, of, of this. You'll see, I, I, I call it downshifting. You'll see persistent patterns of downshifting. Something positive will happen in your life, or some positive opportunity will come up, or some positive invitation will happen in your life, and what you'll do is you'll, you'll downshift. Boom, not so fast. No, 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 no take it easy, I don't think I can get there in time, I'm not moving fast enough, you know, or you know, something, something wrong with the car, I can't, there, surely there are reasons why I can't do that, surely, because you're just, you're just not tuned for it, and, and it seems a, a bit irrational, but we do this, don't we? Just say amen if you know what I'm talking about. We do this, we do this a lot, sabotage, self-sabotage. Is that your word or Jojo's? Sounds like a vocabulary word. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons I call it the spirit of poverty because I, I really think there is a spirit of poverty. I think, I think there's an evil spirit of, of poverty out there. I'll never forget the first time um, I, uh, I visited uh, a really, really poor country. I, I visited Bangladesh for the, for the first time. And I was going to do some missions work there. And we flew into the airport in Dhaka on this you know, fairly small plane. And uh, the flight attendant opened the door and we were standing in the aisles. And I wasn't really paying attention. I was fiddling with my backpack or something. And I just gasped as I just sensed in my spirit the oppression of poverty, right? It wasn't a condition. It was a, it was a spirit. There was an entity out there. There were, I don't know, there were just demons enforcing the mindset of poverty. And, and like before I stepped on the plane, the Lord was talking to me about, you know, it's, it's not that things are bad, it's that everybody expects things to be impossible. Go get them. <laughs> that was kind of the Lord's pep talk uh, to me. But it was very, very clarifying. Uh, and I see some of you who have done missions work sort of nodding your head. And it's like often the first thing you need to change is the spirit that people follow, is the mindset with which people think. And that can be true of our lives uh, here individually uh, as well. I've, I've spent a lot of time ministering in, in very poor subcultures, not just internationally, but around our country as well, living in neighborhoods that are among the worst neighborhoods in, in the country and, and doing ministry there. and And the primary problems are not material. I mean, maybe, you know, material problems sort of started it, but what you do is you encounter cultures of expectation, cultures of faith, but faith placed in the wrong things. I find, generally speaking, that people who have really grown up in an impoverished environment can be geniuses at believing they can't do things. They have a tremendous amount of creativity for self-sabotage um, because it's just hard for them to escape the spirit and the mindset of it because they've had to survive it for so long that they've begun to dedicate themselves to it. You know, you know what I mean? I see some of you nodding out there. It's like, yeah, I've been that. Some of us grew up in families, in which there is a poverty mindset in some way. Families whose structure was organized around maybe enduring, but not changing, not, not overcoming, never having enough, but always being careful because we don't quite have enough or something like that. And that can be sort, sort of uh, uh, scarring. I, I think uh, the family that uh, I lived in, at least for part of my upbringing, uh, was, was like that. Um, my, uh, both my dad and and my stepmother at different times in their lives had material challenges, and there was a time during my early childhood in which uh, we were, you know, a lot of you know this story. We we had nothing. We were running from the law. Uh, My dad, my grandmother, and myself, and, and, uh, you know, my dad couldn't get a real job because he was living under assumed names and stuff like that, and um, if you don't know those stories, I'll share them sometime down the road, but that was those were my formative years. We were, we were poor, you know. We were literally marginalized in society in about every way that you would care to imagine. Um, but eventually, um, materially, things improved. I mean, we were never more than working class, but, but, but we had enough. And then eventually, my dad, you know, through you know, property investments and working really hard, started doing well. Uh, my stepmother had a job. We, we had. We had enough, but we never shifted our lifestyle to accommodate it. We were always taught, no, you don't have enough. You don't have enough. And, and I think this happens in a lot of families for, for reasons that are fairly innocent. So we had enough to eat. We had enough to buy clothes, but I would get like two pairs of pants per school year, to wear one pair of shoes and I'd have to make them do. There were years when I'd have to tape the bottom of my shoes together or staple them or, or sew them myself, keep them together with safety pins because my feet would grow, but we couldn't afford new shoes, but we had thousands of dollars in the bank. What was going on there? It was an expectation of material struggle that meant we had to live as though we were poor, even though we didn't really have to live as though we were poor. It's a mindset that creeps in. And it took my family, my parents, you know, many, many years just to feel like they could be generous in any way. I think eventually, you know, there was some change. But that affected me deeply. I think it still affects me today. I'm really, really, really good at doing without I'm really good, really good at making something out of nothing. What I'm not good at is breaking through to the next level of fruitfulness. That, to me, is a discipline. To really expect things to go exceptionally well, I mean, that's faith for me. When things get easy, my faith is tested more than when things are hard. So I'm a little bit psycho in that area. I don't nod quite so enthusiastically. My wife grew up on Diamond Head in a physician's family. The youngest of five, a little bit spoiled, the way she was treated. Punahou for 13 years. And then she married me. God is just. Pray for her. Um... And I have lots of illustrations uh, about that uh, from from my life. In, in some ways, my my poverty mindset was a great gift to me. You know, I we we met we met in college. We met at an elite college, but from completely different directions. You know, she came from an expectation where you know she would go to an elite college, and I came from you know uh, a valley that nobody escapes. <laughs> um, and uh, we got to college. I didn't have enough money to pay tuition and stuff like that. I would scrounge food. Uh, from you know the leftovers that people would leave behind on tables in the student union and stuff like that. But I did great in college. I did fine. That did not bother me. That did not bother me, because I was equipped for it. But then when something bad would happen, I would deflate. You know, when things didn't work out, because I would just say to myself, "Well, here we go again. Here we go again." I was getting ahead. But now, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be scrounging food forever. And that's where the poverty mindset would come back and, and, uh, and wipe me out. And of course, you know, my story had eventually led me to very severe depression in which I despaired of life, you know, thought about, about killing myself. Because when you truly believe you can't get ahead, well, you can only keep that up for so long. You know, particularly an ambitious guy like me. I was blessed with, I think, kingdom ambitions, but I had a poverty mindset. And uh, they came to a head in my life in in severe ways. I just, you know, share that generally because maybe some of you feel uh, the same sort of thing. What, What happens is we get caught between. We get caught between believing, you know, oh, things will always be very hard for me and trying to believe, because of Jesus' promises, that things could change. And it creates a a tension, a paradoxical tension. We believe that nothing is impossible with God, but that our problems are insurmountable for some reason. And we just kind of live in that paradox. And eventually that paradox will erode your, that tension will erode your faith in God. And what happens is, and here's the upshot, you subtly decide that your purpose is impossible. You subtly decide that not, your life will never be what in your heart of hearts you suspect it should be. And I say you subtly decide this stuff because, you know, your faith in God doesn't allow you to articulate it really, really clearly. But you find yourself settling down, not in a good way. <laughs> In a literal way. You just sort of disqualify yourself for various reasons, and and you can come up with a hundred different reasons if you have to, but, you know, you're not a breakthrough person. You just don't conceive of yourself that way if you were forced to admit it. We see these people in Scripture, and I like them when we see them because I identify with them so much. I love the disciple Thomas. Sometimes he's called Doubting Thomas, I think he gets a bad rap. He's actually one of my heroes. Uh, I like this guy. I want to have a beer with Thomas when we get to heaven. Because Jesus and the twelve disciples are going into Jerusalem, and all the disciples are a little bit screwy in the head. You know, they, they don't quite understand things perfectly, we know. And Jesus has begun to tell them what's going to happen. Look, you know, frankly guys, I'm going to be killed. Why are we going to Jerusalem, Jesus? No, no, I'm going to be killed, and in three days the temple will be rebuilt. You know, it's like all of these little discussions that Jesus is having with them in order to prepare them. And, and finally, you know, in their outskirts of Jerusalem, they have a showdown conversation, and, you know, the different accounts of it. This is, this is where Peter tries to convince Jesus that he doesn't have to go through with it, and Jesus is like, Get behind me, Satan. Uh, Judas has decided he's just going to betray Jesus because he can't handle it uh, anymore. He had his expectations that were not met. And Thomas says this. Thomas says, well, guys, let's go with him and die also. That I can identify with. It's like, yes, that's exactly what I would have said. Because I have the faith to die. I'm good at dying. What I'm not so good at is kind of overcoming and breakthrough. And so, you know, Thomas, Thomas leads the disciples in. I think, yeah, you know, for that one narrow slice of faith, I think Thomas had more than any of the other guys. You know, I'm willing to die. That, that I can do. I don't know anything about Thomas's background, but I can, I can guess some of it. You know, I bet you that Thomas was not unfamiliar with disappointment. I I bet Thomas had become really, really good at living life in the shadow of disappointment and failure. I think he probably loved Jesus because Jesus promised something different than that. But to stick with Jesus, he only had that stamina to draw on. And, And, you know, Thomas carried through. The problem for Thomas is that when things did get better, the sort of faith that allowed him to hang with Jesus through disappointment did not allow him to believe in resurrection and breakthrough, right? And that's why we call him Doubting Thomas. When Jesus shows up after resurrection to his disciples for the first time, everybody's really excited. Thomas is not there in the room hiding with the other guys. Again, I like Thomas, right? He's disappointed. Jesus is dead. Everybody is crestfallen. They're all hiding because they think the authorities want to kill them as well. And Thomas is like, screw that. I'm going for a walk. If they want to kill me, they can kill me. He had the faith to die, but he didn't have the faith to believe things could get better. And then Jesus appears to the disciples, and then Jesus goes, and Thomas comes back, and they're like, Thomas, he's alive! And he's like, yeah, like, I'm going to believe that. Look, I can handle the disappointment, but unless I put my fingers in the scars, dot, 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 and then Jesus shows up, and he's like, yo, and Thomas has a moment there, right? He has to, he has to grow, and, you know, of course, you know, the rest is history, by which I mean the rest is history. Thomas becomes the most adventurous of all the apostles, uh, if you read the early church histories. Uh, by by historical tradition, Thomas traveled farther than any of them. Thomas was martyred in India. That's as far as as he got. Once he took off, he never came back. He never came back. Complete faith. You know, that stamina ended up being an asset. I love Thomas. Snaps for Thomas. Uh, We're getting to the scripture a little bit late, but it's in the back of your program. Fortunately, I think it's a fairly familiar story. And we'll wrap up some of the things we've been talking about. So this is this is Mark 8. Uh, a few chapters earlier, Jesus has done a miracle in which he fed five thousand plus people with five loaves and you know a couple of fish. You know that story, right? the story of the miraculous feeding. Well, just a little while later in Scripture, Jesus does it again. Uh, This time, the crowd is relatively small. It's only about 4,000 people. And he had like seven loaves, you know, so not quite as grand a miracle. But still, a miraculous feeding of thousands of people. Uh, and, And this is the story of the second miraculous feeding, right? Which is once is great, but twice you're starting to get a reputation. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They've done this before, uh, and Jesus is repeating the process. They uh, had a few small fish as well, which is not, not like a huge coincidence. This is travel food for people. They would carry around uh, probably something like barley loaves, and then and dried fish or smoked fish because that was easily preserved. And they were by the sea, so they had a lot of fish. So, you know, it was the, the typical, you know, this, this, was, this was their spam musubi. This was, you know, rice and spam. It's like loaves and fish, same sort of thing. Uh, it might be the same sort of thing. I don't know what's in spam. The people, <laughs> the people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat uh, with the disciples and went to the regions of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came there. So they've just done this miracle. They've crossed the lake. And the Pharisees see them coming. The Pharisees are the religious experts. They're the high and mighty of the religious society of Jesus' day. And the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Ironic. The dude has just fed 4,000 people with, you know, five pieces of bread and a few fish. And the Pharisees showed up and they said, hey, impress us. Give us a sign. And it says, he sighed deeply. <laughs> I, I bet he did. I bet he did. I imagine what that sigh was like. Oh, <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. Um, he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? That word generation is probably a bad translation. Uh, the word means uh, the, this people or this group of people. So I, what he's essentially saying there, why do these people keep bugging me? Uh, why, why do these people ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. No sign will be given to this group. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. So it was quite a day. Like, let's just get out of here, guys. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod, who was sort of the traitorous, false Jewish king of the day, a hypocrite. And they discussed this with one another and said, It's because we have no bread. We're in trouble because we don't have any bread. Irony. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Are you kidding me? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? <laughs> they don't understand. We do. Somebody explain it to me. What's going on here in this conversation? Well, some of it is obvious and some of it I think is, is a little bit a little bit subtle. I think, I think the disciples, they have seen tremendous miracles. They have seen a truism of the kingdom of God. They have seen firsthand that, and i write this down, in the kingdom of God, what you have is always enough. In the kingdom of God, what you have is always enough. Even if it has to be multiplied supernaturally, not really a big issue where the Lord is concerned. In the kingdom of God, what you have is always enough, but something is getting in the way of their perceptions. Do you have eyes and not see? Can you not perceive? Jesus is saying, what, what has happened on this day that has screwed the disciples up? Well, I think it probably has something with the conversation with the Pharisees. Jesus has done this incredible miracle. He's seen breakthrough, breakthrough. He's seen fruitfulness. The disciples are a little tired, but they got to participate in this great thing. And then they have an encounter with the upper class. Then they have an encounter with the authorities, with the experts. And they say, Jesus, give us a sign. And Jesus is like, you know, guys, no, I'm not even going to play that game. Forget it. Now, I imagine there was more to that conversation. I imagine at that point the Pharisees then say, of course you're not going to give us a sign. You know why? You can't. Because you're a fake, and all you guys who are following him are a fake. We don't accept you. You'll never be accepted here. Poverty, poverty, poverty. Poverty mindset, you know, rejection. They were put in their place. Jesus is above it all, but I don't think the disciples have quite made it yet. And so they get back in the boat, and they're rowing, and they're like, oh, crap, we didn't bring enough for lunch. And instead of being in breakthrough mindset, those poor boys are still stuck in poverty mindset. Even though when we read the story, it's like, what a bunch of fools. But but we've been there. You know, we've been there. I've been there you know? I've, I've, I've seen miracles. I've seen people, like, stand up out of wheelchairs in, in front of me during healing sessions and stuff like that, and I still think on my off days that God might be against me, and it's just about mindset, and this is just a great example of it, and Jesus is like, what, what is it, right? You're not hearing. You're not seeing. Are your hearts hardened? Is there something going on emotionally? And I think he was actually trying to be a little bit pastoral there. Why don't you understand? One loaf for 13 people? (laughs) Not a problem. I just did, you know, the five loaves, 5,000. The ratio is in our favor. But, But they have a mindset issue that they just can't break out of. Do you get it? This is a mindset problem. It's a mindset problem. In the kingdom, what you have is always enough. But how? Okay, resourcefulness. Let's kind of end on this really quickly. Resourcefulness. Resourcefulness is simply using what you have to achieve what you should. And it is your privilege in the kingdom of God. In fact, it is one of your greatest privileges in the kingdom of God. If you should do something, by definition, you have what it's going to take to pull it off. And, you know, tons of great Bible stories. When did Jesus ever pick the right person for the job? When did Jesus ever pick the person who had enough to pull it off? God always picked the unlikely person, right? David in front of the army of the Philistines facing the giant. Can't even wear Saul's armor. He had nothing that he was supposed to have, but he's like, you know, I I throw rocks at bears. Let's do this thing, (laughs) right? He was resourceful. He thought of something that nobody else had. And he went out there and he became the hero of, of the nation. It's a spirit of resourcefulness. We Read the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. You know, God raises up a coward. He was definitely a coward. And, and he, he rallies all the people of Israel to himself to fight off uh, the enslaving tribes, to fight off some of these Philistines again. And, and before, on the eve of the battle, God says, no, you have too many. I'm going to whittle it down to just 300 guys, and you have to fight their army of thousands and thousands of guys. But you know the story. Eventually, Gideon and his 300, they surround the camp with torches and clay pots. They came up with a trick. With You know, they were resourceful, and what they did is that they crept up on them and then they broke the clay pots, revealing the flame of the torches. The enemy soldiers woke up and they have the feeling that they're surrounded by a great army, even though it's just 300 doofuses. And, and they, they panic and they end up uh, largely killing each other in the darkness as, as they panicked. And I think, you know, the Lord sowed a little confusion into their camp as well. All of these stories of resourcefulness because he wants to raise up a resourceful people. That's where all the good stories are. Uh, resourcefulness comes with an understanding. In the kingdom, what you have is always enough. But also, things are often harder than they should be. That's the kingdom combination. That's what the Bible <laughs> preaches, if it preaches anything. If you follow God, What you have will always be enough, and your life will be harder than it should be. You see God just drilling his people in this concept. He, he, He breaks the Israelites out of Egypt, he leads them across the wilderness with a pillar of fire, right to a dead end. Their backs against the Red Sea and the massive Egyptian army coming down on them. It was the worst place they could be strategically. And and the Israelites complained to Moses, like, what? You couldn't lead us, you know, to a defensible position? You can't even do that much? You let us out here so that we can be killed? It was a bad choice. A dead end. Great. We get out of slavery just to be murdered in the wilderness with our backs to the water. and, and, And what happens? Miracle. But that good story comes from things being harder than they should have been, God leading them to a dead end. And if God has led you to a dead end, you know, you might have that feeling, boy, my life is harder than it should be. My life is harder than it should be. What you need to do is to match that with its sister belief, but in the kingdom of God, what I have is always enough. Boom! That's the power of combination. That's, that's the complete protein, when both of those things make sense to you together. You following me? That's the kingdom morality. So you're here, and you're faithful, uh, but maybe some of you have stopped expecting progress in life. Maybe for some reason you've developed a poverty mindset. What should you do? Jesus says, in this world you will have trials and tribulations, but fear not, I have overcome the world which is a long-winded way of saying you can't let it get to you. You can't let it get to you. In this world, you'll have trials and tribulations. Bad outcomes will happen. I'm here to tell you people, failure is an option. I've experienced it plenty. But you can't go around expecting failure. That would be the wrong mindset. I think of Hall of Fame baseball players, Hall of Fame uh, hitters, Uh, Hall of Fame hitters, if you bat 300, which means if you get a hit three out of every ten times that you come to the plate, you'll go into the Hall of Fame in professional baseball. Another way of saying that is if you fail seven out of ten times, you are so excellent that you'll be enshrined in the Hall of Fame. And, and I love that game uh, for that reason. Now, any of you played baseball, or really any, any sort of sports, any sort of difficult performance item, when you go to the plate, you know statistically you're going to fail at least 7 out of 10 times. But every time you go, you have to expect you're going to get a hit. Because if you don't expect you're going to get a hit every time, you'll never get any. So to get 3 out of 10, you have to expect 1 out of 1. So there's a positive expectation that allows you to get through a majority of failure. And that is life. That is life. I have failed to heal people miraculously more than any of you have failed, probably. Why do I know? Because I probably prayed for more sick and injured people uh, than any of you, probably. Some of you are catching up with me, I think. But, you know, if if I fail to heal nine people who come forward for healing from paralysis and and being wheelchair-bound, but I succeed in miraculously healing one paralyzed person, one, is that worth it? And two, doesn't that prove there's a miraculous God in my life? I mean, when the standard of performance is doing the impossible, 1 out of 10 is not a bad ratio, when it should be 0 out of 0. And I feel like that's my life. And in order to get 1 out of 10, I don't know exactly what the ratio is, but in order to get 1 out of 10, I need the faith that helps me navigate 90% failure. And that's fine, that's fine. And that's just a principle that you can apply to your life. Don't just have the faith that endures the failures. Have the faith that expects the breakthrough. And if you get some failures, it doesn't really change the level of expectation that you need to have. Because in the kingdom of God, what you have is always enough, but things will be harder than they should be. Because that's how you get the good stories. That's how you get the great testimony. It's not enough for the world to look at believers and say, man, everything works out for them. They're so lucky. That's why they can believe. No, it's better for the world to look at believers and say, man, they have waded through knee-deep crap and still produce beauty and blessing in the world. i got to check into that. There's something going on here that I can't quite explain. I can explain... A believer for whom nothing bad has ever happened. It's hard to explain a believer that has eaten failure and produced glory. And that's what we're called to be. In this world, you will have trials and tribulations, but fear not. I've overcome the world. Breakthrough will happen when you need it. And you're not excused from doing your purpose. You can't let it get to you. Uh, Here's the principle, and it's not not a fancy one, and we'll end on this. Doing what you can with passion will always lead to being able to do more. Doing what you can with passion will always lead to being able to do more. If you can't do it all, do what you can do and that will lead to the next thing and the next thing, and pretty soon you will have won the battle. Personal inventory time. Let's just invite the presence of the Spirit and uh, have Him deal with us on this, because we don't want to be people of faith who have surrendered an important aspect of faith. We don't want to be people in touch with an all-powerful God who expect to be relatively poor in life. You know that nothing is impossible, right? Snaps if you know that nothing is impossible with God. But ask yourself this. What is it about your life that seems impossible to you right now? Okay, you know that nothing is impossible, but do you believe that something is impossible in your own life? There's often a tension between knowing and believing. So what is it? It might be subtle. That's the thing about mindsets. God might have a great purpose on your life, a great calling, and you might well know it, but somehow you don't believe it. Somehow you're not letting yourself proceed on it. Why? What is it? And that can be a complicated question. But I just pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit to come and to point to the bad deals that you've made with your own heart. Let him him speak. What are your big excuses in life? Might be one way to approach it. Limiting relationships, limited income, age, your history, your past? What are your big excuses in life? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, seal up the, 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 the cracks in our armor, uh, the places where we are leaking faith, the bad deals that we've made with our own hearts. I pray that you would heal us of poverty mindsets this morning. In Jesus' name uh, we pray.